please uh, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We again will be in verses 12 through 14. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Grateful to get to open up God's word with you as we get to do each, each Sunday together. <clears throat> I do want to remind you there's a number of things going on in our church family. We uh, are in the middle or have just appointed new deacons. We're in the middle of seeking the Lord's will and adding new eldership to uh, our team. We are uh, moving forward in November 7th to begin a children's discipleship time on Sunday mornings, and so we're really grateful for that. And in particular, if you are interested or not, we would love for you to help serve our children um, at Church in the Square by serving at that capacity. Please let Christina know. You can find out more if you get our emails already through some of those past communications. Uh, but Christina at churchinthesquare.com is a good place to start if you're interested in finding out more. I love you, Levi. That's one of mine. Yeah, this is a safe place, right? They say make a joyful noise or just an honest noise to the Lord. Um, he's really gracious to receive us and all that we are. Uh, last week, we considered this particular passage, but we considered the first part of it, uh, if you remember. Paul is giving his readers two commands. He's giving his readers two commands which are undergirded by a single promise. In other words, this, this one promise that he makes at the end of this particular passage make the two commands possible. So two commands and one promise. And we looked last Sunday at the first command. If you remember, it was don't give yourself to sin. Don't give yourself to sin. And instead, interrogate your desires. Understand, is, is it wise? Is it godly? Is it biblical? Is it time? Is it necessary? And so that we would be a people who don't just simply believe that our best self is the fulfillment of our desires, but that ultimately uh, we are, are not seized by our desires, but ultimately we're to be submissive to God. And so we learned that we're to be careful to presume that any, any feeling or inclination that we have is wise, is biblical, is necessary, and needs to happen immediately. And what Paul is saying to us about our desires in this particular passage is that your desires have been marred by sin, that your inclinations, your, your longings have been stained by the brokenness of this world. But, but it's also very hopeful that your, your passions don't own you. They, they, don't, they, don't, um, they don't control you. And, and therefore, Paul uses this language of accomplishing its purposes or, or, or a sin accomplishing its purposes through you. But he says, do not, in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So the first command is essentially twofold. Don't let sin reign and don't offer your members to sin. Don't let sin reign and don't offer your members to sin. In, in other words, sin wants to destroy you. Sin wants to destroy me. Sin, sin is not innocent. Sin is not your buddy. Sin is not something to be taken lightly. It's just a really challenging situation or something that's minorly inconvenient or just as a bad habit. Paul is using this personifying language in Romans 6 to give us a picture of the power and personality of sin even in the life of a believer. See, if we're not careful, we can be deceived and we can be tempted towards sin if we don't interrogate our desires and understand whether or not they are from the Lord or they will, they will kill us. And that's what James teaches us in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we've considered this idea before in James chapter 1, that we're to be a confessional people, not just when we have sinned, but our, our brothers and sisters, particularly in our groups, should know our desires, so they can see the stirrings in our soul even before we sin. 
Are you with me? I don't want to just be a place where we tell each other when we've done something wrong. I want to be a place and a people that are like, yo, I don't think you're doing well right now, and I think it's drawing you towards sin. Stop right now. Don't entertain that anymore. See, God is better than just forgiving us of our sin. He protects us even from unrighteousness. And he gives us each other and he gives us his spirit. So we interrogate our desires, we understand where they come from, and we refuse to be mastered by them. So that's the first command. Don't give yourself to sin. The second command that we'll look at today is give yourself to God. So the first is negative. Don't give yourself to sin. The second is positive. Give yourself to God. And if I can holler at our kids for just a second, we've got three things we're going to learn today as a church family. That everything you do is supposed to be for God, with God, and like God. So you hear that, kiddos? Everything that you do is supposed to be for God, with God, and like God. So if you've got a crayon, piece of paper, you can write down those three words. Draw something that you do all the time. And then maybe you and your parents could talk during the sermon or after the gathering, maybe over lunch, about how do we do all of these things we like to do, whether it's go to the park, learn at school, or argue with your siblings, right, in a godly way, because we know we need help doing that as well. How do we do those things for God, with God, and like God? And so to help us do that, or rather this is where we get this idea, is from Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 14. And here's what that text teaches us. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. We say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning, because even as we've read these words, uh, we're confronted by a lack of understanding. We're confronted even in what we understand, even applying it. As someone famously said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that scare me or that are hard, but it's the parts that I do understand. And so what we understand from this text is you're calling us to a cruciform kind of life, and that's really hard. And yet there's much about it that we don't understand, and so we desperately desire and need your Holy Spirit to shine brightly through these words that you have inspired through the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. And what a, what a joy it is to know that as they were read for the first time in Rome, they're still just as relevant today in Chicago. That just speaks to your brilliance, your genius, your power, your providence. And so from the outset, we just acknowledge we are not God. You are. We are not supreme. You are. We are not wise. You are. We are not authority. We are not authoritative, but you are. And so we submit to you. None of us is over this word, myself included, but all of us are underneath it. And so help us to be a people that submit to your word for our good and your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, as we just mentioned, the first command that Paul gives of these two is negative. Don't give yourself to sin. And the second is positive. Give yourself to God. Look again, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Don't give yourself to sin. That's the negative, but give yourself to God. That's the positive. And central to Paul's understanding and even his commanding of his first century readers and by God's Holy Spirit to us, central to that idea is this little phrase that he says, as those who have been brought from death to life. 
So the authority with which he is commanding us to behave a particular way and to be grounded in a particular promise is that we are quite literally those who are living people brought back from the dead. Living people brought back from the dead. And we've been talking about this the past few Sundays, that we are part of a new humanity, right? That we are part of this new people, this new kingdom, this new idea and power. This gets at the heart of the Christian storyline. Because paradoxically, maybe quite surprisingly, Secular people and religious people share the same understanding or thinking when it relates to personhood. What I mean is that most of us believe quite instinctively that what you do or you feel or you think, this tells us who we are. What you feel, what you think, what you do, as a result of all of those things, that's who you are. But what the Christian scriptures teach us, what the Bible tells us is the opposite, that who you are tells you what you think. Who you are tells you what you feel. Who you are tells you what you're supposed to do. So Paul is saying that because you are living people who have been brought back from the dead, that's who you are. You do two things. Don't give yourself to sin, but give yourself to God. Because God, after all, is the one who brought you back from the dead. So when we understand our identity about who God is and what he has done in and through us, when we understand who we are in Christ, then we know what to do. You wonder why we're so confused all the time. I think often it's because of this, or not sure what to do, or how to make decisions. It's because we think we are the result of our decisions and our feelings and our thinking. But what the scriptures teach us is that who we are leads to all of those things. So if you're thinking about a new job, get back to your identity. If you're thinking about starting a new relationship, get back to your identity. If you're thinking about changing schools or shifting vocations, or if you're thinking about responding on Facebook to somebody, get back to your identity. Who you are will tell you what to do. Who you are will tell you how to speak. Who you are will tell you what to believe. But what's this look like? What's it really look like to give ourselves to God? Because isn't that a really nice and warm and fuzzy thought for us Christians to just go, like, give yourself to God? You're like, yeah, that sounds like the right answer. What's that mean? I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand. And so I think Paul is really kind to us, and God really kind to us about being clear about what this means. Notice there is this offering language that Paul begins to use. See, it's, founda it's foundational for us to understand the idea, this, this language that he uses related to sacrifice or offering. See, for Paul's original readers, both Jews and Gentiles, they would have instinctively understood this kind of language that Paul was using. To offer is a technical term relating to religious sacrifice. And because most of us, I suspect, have never participated in an animal sacrifice, right, or even seen one taken place, this language and its meaning really elude us. It's not as natural, it's not as instinctive for us to understand. So consider this, considering this idea from Romans 6, one commentator explained it this way. First century people were familiar with the offering of sacrifices. They had stood by their altar and watched as an animal was identified as their own, as it was slain in a ritual manner, its blood manipulated, and the whole or part of the victim burned on the altar and ascended in flames to the deity they worshipped. So this is people who followed the God of the Bible and people who didn't. They all sort of understood. Within and outside of the Jewish culture and context, people understood that a sacrifice was offered and was a worshipful offering in substitute for someone else's death or in substitute for another consequence. So Paul is saying, hear this, that just like an animal sacrifice, followers of Jesus are called to surrender their whole selves, which includes their bodies, in service and submission to Christ. Or as Paul will put it later in Romans, which we'll get to in about 15 years, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of our God, 
to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, the very essence of worship is actually presenting yourself in sacrifice to God. I mean, y'all sounded great today when you sang. That's not the source and substance of worship, of singing to God. It is an aspect of it, or even in prayer, or in scripture reading, or in gathering here. See, we we put too much stock in these sorts of things as the all-encompassing work of worship. Worship is a holistic offering of your life back to God. So don't give yourself to sin, but as living people who are back from the dead, offer yourself to God. Dr. Tim Keller explains that in everyday life, giving ourselves to God means three things. That we do everything for God, with God, and like God. That we do everything for God, with God, and like God. So if we want to know what is it, what does it mean that we offer ourselves to God, we do everything for God, with God, and like God. So in the same way that we interrogate our passions, say, what's that from? Is that godly? Is that, is that right? Or is that sinful? Is, is, is that wise? We're to be wide awake to our thoughts. We're to be open-minded for, to, the, to the Spirit speaking back to us about our behaviors and about our beliefs, being sure that we do anything and everything for, with, and like God. Are you with me? The old way of living, the old humanity, is just about avoiding sinful behavior. Don't do bad things. If, if perhaps this is how you grew up. Perhaps this is even how you're living right now. Just don't do bad things. God will be impressed, and at the end of your life, he'll, he'll say, you did, you did more good than bad. You avoided the right things. Or perhaps as a more progressive, secular, modern person, you're just, you're just like, avoid any restrictive rules. Live free. Live as, live as I please to, to, to embrace the fullness of this life that I have been given, right? But the new way of living, the new humanity that we have in Christ, is about honoring God in all that we do. It's not just about avoiding bad things or avoiding restriction. It's saying, who is God, what is he like, and how do I follow him, right? So we do that in three ways. Everything we do is for God, everything we do is with God, everything we do is like God. So let's look at those three things. Ask for God's help in in understanding what this looks like. Everything you do is meant to be for God. In other words, God is our reason, he is our purpose, and he is our logic. So when people ask you, why do you live there? God is our answer, right? And you might say, that sounds really weird. It only sounds weird because we are living lies. It only sounds weird because we're terrified at what people will say. It does not sound weird. When you read your Bible, you go, actually, no, that's the most sensical thing I could possibly say. Are you with me? I'm only alive because of God. I only live here because of God. Why do you shop there? God. Because God has entrusted me with resources and has this great place and a lot of people that he providentially organized so I can pick up that loaf of bread off of that shelf. It is only by his favor that I could shop there. Why is that person your friend? God. They're really hard sometimes, and I'm really hard sometimes, but God is holding us together, right? He is the reason that we do anything and everything. God himself, his glory, is always the motivation and understanding of everything that we do as Christians. So before we do anything, we're supposed to ask, how will this idea, how will this action, how will this purchase, how will this relationship, how will this situation bring glory to God? How will it further his kingdom? How will it honor him? Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 and 23. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Paul communicates this this same idea in his letter to the people in Corinth who were really doing whatever they pleased and whenever they pleased and with whomever they pleased. He says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do all for the glory of God. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we develop, cultivate a life where everything we do is for God? How do we cultivate a central motivation uh, that, that God himself really is our central motivation and understanding? Well, I'd like to suggest to you, it's not always having this like moral calculus where you like are terrified to break another rule that we have just made. You go, I don't know if that's for God. I don't know. So I'm just going to not do anything until I hear him speak audibly like this is, this is okay. We can sort of like that analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis. I don't know how that goes. But we just don't do anything until we're really, really clear on it. That's not what I think the Lord is after, that we would live in fear that way. Rather, for the Christian, this actually becomes instinctual. This kind of thinking and living becomes instinctual through love. Through love. See, the more you and I are aware of God's love and nurture a love for him, the more you are motivated by him. The more he becomes central to your pattern of thinking. Right? If you know that the meal you ate legit came from him and by his goodness and grace... You will enjoy that slice of pizza. You will enjoy that pita and hummus. You will enjoy that wonderful bubbly drink and worship to God because you know you didn't earn it. You didn't earn that. Right? I was talking to somebody just this week that when we view whatever we have as something that we earn, we will never do it for God. But if we do it knowing that it is a gift, that all of life is a gift, all of it is done in worship to him. See, in other words, doing everything for God is not a decision in a moment. It's the result of daily cultivating something of a relationship and of love with God. See, I think sometimes we boil it down to just like as parents going, okay, today I'm going to parent my children for the glory of God, so help me, right? And in this particular moment, or we're going to lead this, this meeting for the sake of his great name, right? Or that we're going to buy these jeans so that the nations will know that Jesus is Lord, Right? It becomes these very weird Christian culture sorts of things. But what I believe that God is actually after is not those sorts of like warm, fuzzy, and really empty ideas, but he's after your heart. See, if he has your heart, if, if you are surrendered to him and you are falling more in love with him, all of these things become more natural to us. We don't simply give our, ourselves to God in a moment spontaneously. We give ourselves to God through a lifetime, through the rhythms of grace and spiritual formation. See, Paul is talking about cultivating a rich purposefulness by drawing close to God through the daily reading of his word, through praying for people and with people about your pains and celebrations, by witnessing his power made perfect in your weakness, by listening to his voice even in the stillness of sorrow and fear. See, doing everything for God is not something you muster up the power to do every day. Rather, it is fruit produced by an abiding love for God. When you really love God, and perhaps more than that, when you really trust and know that he loves you, all you do is for him. All you do is for him. Secondly, everything we do is meant to be with God. Consequently, doing things for God is, is really a result of understanding that his presence is with us, that he is a God who is with us. So before we think of doing things with God, we need to understand uh, that we can only do so because God has chosen to be with us. God is with us in multiple ways. The incarnation of the Son of God is preeminent as the, uh, this understanding that God is with us. He drew near to us by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. In fact, the Father named the Son God with us in Isaiah. And then the angel who spoke to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, put it this way, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? 
God with us. Additionally, perhaps no other promise is put on repeat more in the scriptures than God saying, I'm going to be with you and you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. Some form of that is resplendent through the scriptures. He promised Jacob in Genesis, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will be and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I think some of you need to hear that today. God says he's not going to leave you until he's accomplished what he has promised you. God is not going to leave you until he brings to completion all that he has promised. So there's this aspect of God being with us in the incarnation, but the incarnation of the Son of God is a rich fulfillment of an ancient promise that God has given his people. And Jesus himself, what does he promise his disciples before he ascends? Behold, I am with you always, even till you annoy me, until you bug me, until you don't have enough faith. No, until the end of the age. He's going to be with you. Jesus is so much more persistent, so much good at being persistently with you than you are at sinning. I'm so grateful for that. He is so much more persistent in giving you his presence than we are at rejecting it. See, God is with us. And because God is with us, we can and must do everything with God. This is the second way in which we give ourselves to God. That no matter what you do, where you go, what happens to you, God is with you, church and square. No matter where you go. There are not some places that are godly and some places where he is called religious and some places he says, I'll be present. Wherever you go, because his spirit dwells in you, he is with you. His presence empowers us, heals us, helps us, shapes us, reveals truth to us, guides us, convicts us, changes us, humbles us, and so much more. So when we give ourselves to God, we are surrendering to the reality that God dwells in us and with us as people. So as followers of Jesus, God has given us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to live in us. And regretfully, I think, particularly through the last couple of decades of church history, this idea of God with us has been used much more as a tactic of guilt and shame than of comfort and power. In, in other words, this doctrine is not about, watch out, God's with you, he knows what you're doing, and so you better button it up. That's not what, what this idea is. It's the opposite. It's that no matter what you do, or how you fail, or how broken you feel, or who comes at you, God is right there with you. He won't abandon you or get you because you forgot he was with you. He will comfort you when you forgot he is with you. He'll help you. He is with you when your classmate calls you a mean word. He is with you when your marriage seems like it will never be peaceful again. He is with you when you're making an important decision. He's with you when you think you're making a really innocuous or not really important decision. And because God is with us, then we are called to be a people who do everything with God, by his power, by his grace. Thirdly, everything we do is like God. So everything we do is for God, everything we do is with God, and, and also everything we do is like God. This is how we offer ourselves to God in worship. We considered a couple of weeks ago the power of identity and how central that is. Much of what we do and say and think and believe is in pursuit of promoting and even understanding our self-identity. We see this, I think, nationally, too. For instance, I heard author David Brooks in an interview just last week, he's a writer for the New York Times, that politics and government used to be about legislation and forming a more perfect union. Did you know that? 
that government and politics used to be about mandating laws and making sure that, that things were like run smoothly and in our country. And now what are they about? Who are you? It's about your identity. It's about your personhood. And we divide ourselves from people, not because they have different ways of thinking about government, but because of who we deem them to be because they voted a certain way or act a certain way or have a particular kind of mindset in politics. It's about us. See, but for the follower of Jesus, all we do and say and think is meant to tell the world not about us, but about God. This is what God is like. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, if we read that too quickly, we, we may miss what Jesus is trying to communicate. This comes right after Jesus tells his disciples that they're, the salt, they're supposed to be the salt and light of the earth. He's talking about their behavior, about their attitudes, about their work in the world. And so when he says good works, he's referring back to all of that. He's talking about the righteousness that they do. But notice, how do people respond when they see your good works, church? How are people supposed to respond when they see you loving one another, taking care of each other, and befriending the least and the last and the lost? They're supposed to what? Glorify the Father in heaven. Why? Because when people watch you live and work and talk with your in-laws or about the coronavirus, they are supposed to learn not about you and what you think and what you're like. We're supposed to reveal the nature and beauty and power of God. They're supposed to learn about Jesus while they watch us act. We are supposed to live like him, love like him, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly like him. We're supposed to forgive like him. We're supposed to be generous like him. We're supposed to adopt children like him, stay faithful like him. Everything we do is meant to be like God. So no matter what you do, you're supposed to tell the truth to the world about who God is. No matter what you do, everything we do is supposed to be like God. Are you with me in this? And what Paul is doing is helping us see what does this life look like as we offer it to God. Everything you do is for God. Everything you do is with God. Everything you do is like God. We present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness when we consider that all we do is for, with, and like him. Or as Marva Don has written, the goal of the Christian life is that for more and more seconds of each day, what we think and do and say is to God's glory that every moment is, is worship of the true God instead of various idolatries of our making or of our culture. In other words, when I look back, I may not really like the person I see 10 years ago, but by God's grace, I can celebrate that more and more what God is doing in my life is making me look more and more like my God. More and more of my life is for and with and like him. Those are the two commands. Don't give yourself to sin. Give yourself to God. Now, these are supposed to feel daunting. You're supposed to hear those two things and just go, I could never do that. You're supposed to. If, if we were, ultimately, if we thought that the power resided with us, we would not be, this would not be very hopeful to refuse sin and to give yourself to God. See, neither of these imperatives are actually possible without the indicative that we find in verse 14. Look what it says, Romans 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are no longer under law, but under grace. See, on our own, we can't stop sinning. Have you tried? On our own, we can't just give ourselves to God. Have you tried? In fact, sin is so much part of who we are outside of Christ, 
we sometimes don't even realize what sin is or what we are doing most of the time. It reminds me of what Joy Davidman wrote in her great book, Smoke on the Mountain, which the name alone is worthy of a read. She says that fear is so much our disease that we have forgotten it is a disease. We take it for granted as the normal basis of all human action. I think the same could be said of sin. Sin has become so much part of our lives that we have failed to even recognize and failed to even recognize when it shows up. So to live this new life, we need liberation and we need rehabilitation, not new commands. We don't need new commands. We, we need a new righteousness. After all, God would be a cruel new master if he told us to live like freed people but did nothing about the shackles that bind our bodies and our hearts and our minds. What's the text tell us? Sin will have no more dominion over you. You are not under law, my sister. You are under grace, my brother. These are not commands. They're statements of accomplishment. Did you get it, Levi? Way to go, son. Speaking of accomplishment, he said, I did it. I got my toy. Now sit down and listen to dad. That was a joke if you're new today. See, what these are is celebrations. They're celebrations of a new reality. They are kept promises. See, we can't refuse to give ourselves to sin unless Jesus has broke the bondage of sin. But now we can because Jesus has defeated sin. He's nailed it to the cross and rendered sin's dominion powerless in our lives. Satan is no longer your master because Jesus has defeated him. Sin is no longer your disease because Jesus has healed you. Death is no longer your consequence because Jesus took your punishment, your consequence, and nailed it to the cross. Jesus is your Lord. Righteousness is your unmerited reward. That life forever has been sealed because of Jesus. Because of his death, then, you can refuse sin and you can give yourself to God. You can live for God, you can live with God, and you can live like God. In short, what Paul is saying, and this is how he summarizes it, you're not under the law anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to obey God's word. What it means is that the Mosaic law is now no longer the thing that is weighty upon your shoulders because Jesus has fulfilled it. We are no longer bound in the era of the law. We are bound in the era of grace. In Jesus, a new covenant has been introduced by his love and by his power. And so Paul says, you're under grace now. That's why he started this whole passage in verse 1 with, should we go on sinning so grace would increase? The answer over and over again has been no, because grace is already abounded in Jesus. No, because you are no longer bound to sin. No, because your identity does not come through the Mosaic law. That just leads to shame. No, because your identity does not come through your passions. That just leads to guilt. No, because you are in Christ. No, because sin has no dominion over you. Are we to go on sinning so grace may increase? No, because you are under grace. So don't give yourself to sin. Give yourself to God. And we know that we can only give ourselves to God because in Christ, God has already given himself to us. So Heavenly Father, we ask for your help to believe this, to live this, to do all that we do for and with and like you. So empower us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.